This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. You know, for over 15 years, Gowan Canada has focused our deepest respect for science and passion for agriculture to help growers work toward the results they need to grow profitable crops. Herbicide resistance is a growing challenge and chemical rotation is king. Our Muddy Boots approach to understanding crop protection challenges helps us deliver the right solutions for sustainable weed and pest management. To see the full list of products, go to GowanCanada.com. That's GowanCanada.com. Always read and follow label directions from Gowan Canada. Welcome, everyone. My name is Dylan Shirley, and I will be your host for this week's episode. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Ben Ellert. He is a research scientist in biogeochemistry and the agroecosystem science team lead with Agriculture and Agri-Foods Canada at the Lethbridge Research and Development Center in Lethbridge, Alberta. Ben, welcome to Inputs. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And we're very happy you are here today. In anticipation of World Soils Day, we thought we'd talk everything all to know about how to keep your soil health up and optimize and keep those greenhouse gas emissions low. So we'll just get going right into it. Ben, could you talk about how soil health, when we're talking about, you know, an agriculture and uh, a producer's cropland and greenhouse gas emissions, how those are all related and how perhaps increasing your soil health can actually help to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, in, in agriculture, my career here as a, as a soil scientist, we've long been interested in the land-atmosphere exchange of the main greenhouse gases between agricultural land and, and cropping systems, production systems in the atmosphere. Agriculture is a little bit unique relative to a lot of other industries. In transportation industry, for example, we hear a lot about carbon dioxide. And that's really the big one. But in agriculture, we're a little bit unique in that in addition to carbon dioxide, we also have to be concerned about nitrous oxide molecules of N2O that are emitted usually from the soil surface and from manure handling systems. And we're also concerned about methane emissions. And in agriculture, somewhat unique, those are emissions from biological processes typically associated with fermentation in the gut of ruminants, in in the rumen. And cows emit uh, methane to the atmosphere, mainly through rectitation and processes like that. So those are some of the main greenhouse gases. And greenhouse gases... In addition to concerns about their influence on warming, changing the atmosphere and what that means for the radiation budget of the planet, we also are interested in greenhouse gases from the perspective of system-wide efficiency. So, for example, if we're leaking nitrous oxide from our soils to the atmosphere, That is nitrogen that we are not using to produce protein in our crops. And that's where we make money. So we are concerned about those kinds of leakages. And the similar thing applies to methane. 
if the cows are emitting and producing lots of methane, exhaling methane, that is methane that is not being cons- converted into, that's, that's carbon that's not being converted into livestock products, you know, meat and milk and, and those kinds of things. So a number of us work on that. The enteric fermentation tends to be the domain of my colleagues in livestock sciences to make sense of these processes. We must talk and we do try to talk. We're fortunate at Lethbridge to have a complement of people in a variety of different disciplines where we can try to piece together our understanding of the entire system. It's not enough to only understand what happens to carbon when a cow eats uh, a forage or a, a feed ration. We need to understand the whole entire process and where that cow fits into the system. And the same can be said for um, a, a wheat field. It's not enough to know just the yield and the amount of nitrogen that's required to do that. We also need to understand the full context of the rotation of that wheat field and rotation with other crops and all these different factors to understand the overall influence on not only the atmosphere, but also the efficiency of of production. Right. And in reading about your previous work and just getting to have a better feel of your general field of research, I I found that you have a good relationship with some of these long-term research sites or LTRs. And how do those kind of help you and your colleagues start to identify the relationship between, you know, the historical data of, of, of a site and then as well as the efficiency of that field, you know, how great is it actually at trapping in the nitrogen? How poor is it at losing carbon? Right. So how, how in the past have you been able to use these LTRs? The, the long-term agroecological research sites, those are, have long been, uh, I think, a really valuable part of agricultural research. And those of us whose background is strongly in soil science, we really lean on those because soils are amazingly complex. And to understand the influence of how we use the land on the productive capacity and the ability of the soils to stand up to what we demand of them it's very difficult to glean that understanding from a three-year project on one kind of a a funding cycle. And uh, some of the earliest long-term agroecological studies were established in England at the Rothamstad Research Station in the mid-1800s. And the Dominion chemist that first uh, was hired in the Dominion Department of Agriculture, the the former name of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, he visited England and he set up a set of these studies across the can across the country, so that we could understand the influence of our management practices on the soil. 
we have some of those studies at, here at Lethbridge that go back. We've got data going back as early as 1911 at Lethbridge. And there's other ones at various sites. Most of these are at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada research sites. There are some uh, at some of the universities as well, most notably as the University of Alberta Breton plots. But one of the things when we look at greenhouse gas emissions from agricultural land, probably your listeners will be familiar with the term soil carbon sequestration. And the soils contain a sizable stock of carbon. They, they are, they're a storehouse of carbon that is removed from the atmosphere. And each year there is an exchange of carbon between our land and the atmosphere. And in fact, the amount of carbon stored in the soils is greater than that in the atmosphere. So understanding that exchange is, is very crucial. And it's not just from the climate change. It's very important for climate change. And that's why there's interest in carbon sequestration. But we're also concerned about maintaining those stocks of soil carbon so that our soils retain productive. And the current term for that, that many of your listeners will have heard, is soil health. And soil health is a, a sort of an overarching term for how how good is the soil at uh, fulfilling a bunch of requirements, several requirements that we ask of our soils. One of those things is crop production. We need our soils to produce uh, good crops of wheat, barley, canola, those kinds of things. We need our soils to produce good forage crops to feed our livestock. But at the same time, we need our soils to anchor the soil to the ground so it doesn't wash away or blow away by erosion. And we need our soils to retain carbon the, uh, from the atmosphere as a storehouse of soil. And because those changes in the stocks of carbon in the soil are challenging to, to determine, these long-term agroecological research sites are really valuable to understand the influence of our cropping practices on levels of soil organic carbon or carbon sequestration. I, I like how you're already kind of thinking where I'm going to go ahead here and talk about climate change. And if anyone's been on the prairies over the last five, 10 years, they would know that it's been a little dry out there. You know, everyone's kind of hoping for rain, you know, some parts of the provinces and some parts of Saskatchewan, for instance, they get a good amount of rain, but then there's a lot of other farmers in Southern Alberta and Southern Saskatchewan that are just dying for that little bit of rain. So Thinking about these long-term research sites that you and your colleagues use, how do we know how extreme weather events like droughts impact soil health? And what can the LTRs kind of tell us that uh, we should anticipate based on this vast amount of historical data? Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. And that's one of the one of the things that our long-term studies tell us because they've been exposed to every, they say that every year is different, but we've got well over a hundred years of crop production under our belt in some of these studies. And we've seen a lot of things. Any one 
career of a scientist is short relative to that 100 years. But in the time that I'm here, I can look back at our precipitation records and I can pick out some of the wet decades and the dry decades. And just now in the in the agriculture year ending the 31st of July, we've had one of the driest 10-year stretches in in an awful long time. Another very dry period in southern Alberta was in the area from 1917 to 1926 was horrendously dry. The 1930s were notorious for being dry, but when you look at the amount of precipitation, they weren't all that dry, but they were consistently every year of those 10 were pretty, were pretty grim. The 1980s also were very dry and that has a, a, a big influence on productivity. Our technology has changed vastly over the years. So the influence of these dry years currently are not as devastating as they were, say, from 1917 to 1926, but they still influence, and especially when we're talking about the sustainability of our cropping systems, we're very concerned about environmental sustainability, but we're also concerned about the economic sustainability, the viability for these these systems to uh, make for our producers to be able to make a living on them and there when we have climate change it's important to have a system that can cope with those climate challenges and also systems that can be resilient to those climate challenges so that they don't totally break down and that was one of the things that happened in the 30s, for example, is they were using technologies like stationary threshing machines where all the residues was removed from the land. And they were using summer fallow where half of the land in any given year was tilled to uh, prevent vegetation growth, leaving the soil wide open to wind erosion and that sort of thing. So over the years, our cropping system, we've we've developed and we've uh, incorporated technological advances so that we don't suffer some of those crap as catastrophic changes of that. But it's always a challenge that we're pushing forward together, the soil scientists, the agronomists, the ag engineers. Again, it's one of these things that's a, a multidisciplinary thing to produce as much crop per unit of of moisture that we have to work with. So we're of plants, crop plants that have more efficient photosynthetic mechanisms, a C4 mechanism versus a C3 photosynthetic pathway. We're looking at crops that can avoid some of the worst drought situations. So oftentimes a winter cereal, a fall seeded crop, it takes advantage of that early spring moisture and you don't lose that spring. You use it to grow a crop as opposed to losing it by tilling and seeding and that sort of thing. So those are some of the adaptations we're making to make better use of the resources that are there and to make our systems bounce back after a particularly dry year. 
from what I can kind of gauge for the industry in, in general, I know a lot of producers, a lot of scientists are pushing towards some sort of forecasting capabilities, maybe building out a model to kind of see, you know, using past data, put it into a model, and then that will help producers make these decisions on what kind of technologies that they're going to use in their field to keep up that soil health level or capabilities that they are looking for. So is there sort of a model available in Canada or for the greater area of North America, let's say, that helps producers or researchers estimate greenhouse gas emissions and also the soil carbon levels in a given region? That's one of the things. Yes, we do use models a lot. We've, we've used, we've used, uh, models for a, a, ever since we had mathematics. So right from the very beginning, we use models to try to hold up to test and to embody our understanding of how the system works. And those long-term cropping system studies were really critical for our understanding of the factors that influence the stock of carbon that's stored in those soils. So that's one aspect of it. But in a more, more specifically related to greenhouse gas emissions, we also use a number of, of mathematical tools and they vary widely in their scope and what they're applied for on what level they're applied for. One of the most iconic sort of models of um, changes in atmospheric composition globally is what's known as the Keeling curve. And it's just simply a record of CO2 levels um, at an observatory in on the top of a volcano at Mauna Loa in Hawaii, and they have a record that shows how atmospheric CO2 is increased. But of course, we have that data, and we test our understanding of that by developing models for it. It's no different in an agricultural system, but we use models that are more targeted towards an agroecosystem. And one of my colleagues here at Leftbridge is working on a greenhouse gas calculator that we call HOLOS. And HOLOS is focused on farm level emissions. It's not just focused on individual field or one square meter of a canola field. And it's not just focused on three months of a growing season. It's the annual uh, greenhouse gas emissions from the entire farm. And it tries to calculate the trade-offs between the different points where we emit greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And it's particularly challenging in agriculture because, as I said, it's not good enough for us to only consider carbon dioxide. We have to consider nitrous oxide and uh, methane emissions as well. And the HOLOS is a model that tries to put that together. So it helps us address things. You know, for example, if we produce strictly annual crops, it entails a decrease from the carbon levels that were in the native grassland. Perennial grasses generally retain more carbon in the soil than annual crops do. 
The name of the game of annual cropping is to produce harvestable food and fiber for export from the system. And that entails a little bit of a decrease in soil carbon stocks. If you convert that to back to perennial forages, you can restore those carbon levels. But if you're growing perennial forages to make use of those, typically they're fed to ruminant livestock, and that entails methane emissions. So the Holos model allows us to look at the balance between these various inputs and outputs of greenhouse gases from the system. We can look at things, for example, on um, nitrous oxide emissions. You know, people, the, the, the reaction to nitrous oxide is, oh, it's a, it's a very potent greenhouse gas. So each molecule of N2O is like 300 molecules of CO2 being emitted. It's a potent greenhouse gas. But to maintain healthy soil with good levels of carbon and an economically viable production system, there is some level where it's beneficial to apply inorganic nitrogen fertilizer, even if some of that inevitably leaks to the atmosphere of nitrous oxide. And these tools help us researchers, but they're also useful for farmers and, and they're designed for the the producer to sit down with his farm and take a look at the places where he might be able to make a change to decrease emissions from the farm. That's fantastic. And one thing that I've just gathered from listening to you is just how interdisciplinary uh, your work that just your work or with your colleagues, just how it kind of all builds together. And I feel like this next question is kind of going that same direction where, where are you looking to go or where are you looking to research next into perhaps new technologies? You know, I, I understand the science of anything just never stands still. And people always want to find that new way they might be able to help out a producer there or be able to understand a new pathway there. So what kind of new technologies are you looking at to improve soil health for producers in Canada? Uh, new technologies for soil health. We're always looking, I guess, at all, at all aspects and to uh, improve efficiency of resource use and environmental performance of our cropping systems. So uh, one of the the new things, and, and like I say, this is an inherently interdisciplinary, you know, I've got colleagues that are plant geneticists, and that is a huge factor, is developing plants that better cope with climate challenges and can produce the most valuable commodities with the least environmental environmental impact. So the whole field of genomics is a, a big one. There's uh, other technologies is some of the remote sensing and digital agricultural proximal sensing of our soils to recognize the heterogeneity of the farm, to 
rather than managing fields uniformly across the entire farm, there's new technologies there. Another aspect that we're concerned about, and it's more the environmental sustainability aspect of our crop production systems, is uh, the implications for biodiversity. So we're always interested in protecting off-farm ecosystems and adjacent areas. How is there a place for wetlands, for example, in our cropping systems? In some cases, wetlands can be potent emitters of greenhouse gas emissions. But if we're careful with nutrient management in the more upland regions, our wetlands can be very critical uh, reservoirs of biodiversity. They may even harbor beneficial insects that are useful for pest control and pollination and those kinds of things. So shelter belts, uh, trees that can withstand salt stresses and that sort of thing. Those are some of the, some of the main things. We have some pro- products and technology that we're looking at enzyme inhibitors on our nitrogen fertilizers so that we can synchronize the crop demand for nitrogen more closely with the supply of available N in the soil. And we can do that chemically and biologically. So those are some of the the technologies, but it's it's really broad and it's beyond any one individual the greenhouse gas calculator. We have a specialist in ecosystem modeling that puts all the pieces of the farm together. And he asked difficult questions, not just of the soil scientists, but also of our crop breeders and our livestock scientists as well. So it's really a, a, a team sport, I guess. Well, that's kind of how everything has to be. You know, everyone's got to throw a, a hand in and get asking these hard questions and trying to find those answers. Cause that's just how everything's going to progress further. And we start to, like you said, get better at identifying those leeches or higher gas emitters and start working on those efficiencies for different cropping systems or different livestock system. Let's say. So lastly, I'd be remiss not to mention, you know, we're coming up to World Soil Day. And a few years ago, you and your technician, Caitlin Lutz, wrote a children's book for a contest uh, that was called Soil Biodiversity, What's Most Important? So, Dr. Eller, I just want to ask, what motivated you and, and your technician to take on this challenge of writing a uh, children's book? And what, what's been the reception over the last couple of years from the book? Yeah, that's a example of a little bit of outreach work that we did, and it was precipitated by the pandemic, actually. And it's all tied in with the rest of the work here. During the, the pandemic, of course, I was concerned about the potential impacts of that on our long-term cropping system studies. And I pointed out to our, our management management here that You know, we have data for 1918 when the Spanish influenza outbreak was, and we we think we should be able to find a way to keep our, maintain the integrity of our long-term cropping systems. So we were pretty busy during the growing season uh, maintaining those studies. But then when the growing season was winding down, it was coming to the fall of the year, I had colleagues 
in you know more the sciences that's conducted indoors the the microbiology segment and the laboratory research that's in, in also important and we thought that maybe we could back away from our laboratory work a little bit and to fill that gap i saw that there was uh this competition with the food and agricultural organization to try to engage young folks in the importance of soil biodiversity. And my uh, technician, Caitlin Lutz, who works closely with me, I knew she had a penchant for drawing and, and, and an artistic talent there. So that's why we put the book together on for young folks to try to ignite, I guess, their imagination into the creatures that live in the soil. And we ended up winning second place in this international competition. So we felt uh, pretty good about that. With the pandemic and all the rest of it, we managed to get a little bit of funding. And of course, we made bilingual version of the book. And with all the screen time that kids were getting, we also got a little bit of money to print some hard copies of that book as well. And we've been getting quite a bit of um, uh, enthusiasm for that, the compelling story. And that's that's the way of the future. You know, we're always looking at new technologies and innovative practices. But to keep that pipeline full, we need to continue to engage young folks in science and science related to agriculture. So I guess that was one of our goal of it. And uh, it was a, a real fun project. Yeah, no kidding. And just to touch on that, that's fantastic. You know, just the the inherent need to keep the younger generation, you know, the the future farmers, the future soil scientists, let's say, we need to keep them interested in looking at all these other things that we're going to have to ask of them in the next 20 to 30 years. So personally, when I read the book, it was very nice just to kind of go over. That was fantastic of you and your technician taking this up on for yourselves uh, at a very tough time for a lot of people. That was fantastic. Yeah, and that was an initiative of the Food and Agriculture Organization. Of course, they celebrate World Soil Day. I believe it's on the 5th of December every year coming up here. And in that, it was uh, 2020, the theme was um, soil biodiversity. And the years since then, they've had a number of, of different themes. I believe the theme for this year is soil and water. So it very much is related to the climate extreme question that you were asking earlier is, is how to, how to maintain agricultural production in the face of water shortage, essentially. And that question is as relevant here as, as anywhere for sure. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out to see if there's any uh, new children's book that the Food and Agriculture Organization is going to be putting out. Yeah, for sure. Well, Dr. Ellert, thank you so much for joining us today on Inputs. This was fantastic. Where can people contact you if they have any questions about what we've been discussing today? I guess the best way to contact me is at my email address. And if you want to put that in at the bottom of the the podcast and and they can contact me by by email is probably the best way fantastic well again dr ellert thank you so much for joining us today on inputs thank you and been fun 
Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. To hear more great research and perspectives from industry experts, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts or catch up on past episodes wherever you listen to podcasts.